Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Scott Miners, author of the new book, Tree by Tree, Saving North America's Eastern Forests. Scott Miners is professor of biological sciences at Eastern Illinois University. His research interests generally revolve around factors that influence the dynamics and regeneration of plant communities. And he is also interested in a wide variety of topics in community ecology. We spoke to Scott about the two species that are already functionally lost from Eastern North America's forests, the American chestnut and the American elm, and why these trees serve as cautionary tales for the challenges now facing the Eastern hemlock, the white ash, and the sugar maple today. We also discuss what we as citizens need to do, both individually and collectively, to protect our forest's future. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Tree by Tree, Saving North America's Eastern Forests. Tell us the backstory of this book. So um, as a plant ecologist, you kind of accumulate this sort of information, and then um, and it comes out at odd times sometimes, to my wife's chagrin oftentimes. Uh, we were actually walking with friends, um, an ecologist uh, colleague of mine and her, her spouse, walking with them in Sacramento and uh, probably walking to dinner or from dinner or something like that. And we were, we were walking along and I started looking at some of these trees. I'm like, what is this tree? I'm like, it looks familiar, but I can't quite place it. And we were basically along a, a street of American elms. And I kind of went around and actually found where they just recently treated them to keep the, the, the disease out of them. And that just, that sort of simple thing, because it's the beautiful, largest elms I've ever actually seen other than in photos, just started this conversation. And, and at somewhere along the line, I said, you know, tree by tree, we're losing, we're losing our, our species and nobody seems to care. And my friend looked at me and said, that's a great book title. You should write that book. And so, um, so that actually kind of then I'm like, no, no, that doesn't make sense. And then, uh, cause I don't know that much. And then, you know, you just kind of start thinking that seed gets planted um, to keep with the tree analogy then that kind of came about. And then I, I had a sabbatical coming up and I said, Hey, this is a, this is, this is a good time to sort of explore some of these ideas. Excellent, excellent. Now you'd mentioned the elm. How many elms are left? I know that they were wiped out, effectively wiped out by Dutch elm disease. How many do you know still exist? Yeah, there, there still are quite a few. We actually, in a, in a place that I work in New Jersey, there are a few sort of that have persisted in the old growth forest and we find seedlings of them. So there are still several I shouldn't say several, but there, there are still some out there. I think if we were to be able to get rid of the disease magically somehow, they could actually recover pretty well. Um, most towns still seem to have a couple, two, three. Uh, Charleston, where I teach, there's one really sad, half-dead looking elm. When I when I did my undergrad, we had a really, really pathetically bad, that's, that tree's almost certainly dead by now. But there, there are some uh, still that persist. Um, some municipalities, uh, particularly further west where the disease spread was a little more patchy. Um, some cities still have been able to maintain them. Obviously, Sacramento maintains a, a pretty nice, they must have enough that it makes it worth them going around and having a crew that will do that sort of thing. Um, so they are out there, but the, where you seem to find them are basically in towns and in cities, not out in forests other than really, really small individuals because the, the disease seems to persist. And then once they get large enough, that you know, a bark beetle or something might be interested in them, 
they get a little hole in them, they get the fungus, they die. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the sad part of that. So. Wow. Wow. Well, you, you focus on uh, several trees in the book, including uh, the elm, but also the American chestnut. Both of those uh, have been effectively wiped out. But then there are three additional trees that you focus on, the eastern hemlock, the white ash, and the sugar maple, among some others, that are facing threats right now. I know that the American chestnut, that there have been successful kind of hybrids with a Chinese chestnut. Tell us a little uh -huh. bit about that, that they're trying to like kind of revive like a hybrid chestnut into the United States? Yeah, so the uh, American Chestnut Foundation for more than two decades now has been uh, sort of engaged in a, a breeding process. And so what they've been doing is uh, crossing American chestnuts with Chinese, I believe they're all, all Chinese chestnuts. Um, and then they actually have an interesting screening. They, they grow them for a little bit and then they just douse them with the fungus. So they're, they're not gonna wait for a fungus to come along, they're actually uh, infecting these things more than they would be exposed to in the wild. And then the idea is then that as they go through that, they keep the best ones, they grow them up. Chestnuts do actually become reproductive relatively young. Um, and then, so they're able, they've been able to kind of push through generations pretty quickly. So that what they're trying to do though, is they're trying to get things that are much more sort of American chestnut, which was much more of like a nice canopy tree. Um, I, I have a whole orchard of, uh, largely Chinese chestnuts. And they're much like, they're a lot more of a spreading tree, almost like a full-size peach or apple. Um, so that's not really a good forest tree sort of structure. So they're trying to both in a genetic sort of sense to kind of get closer to what the Americans were, but then also then in more of a stature sort of way. Um, and that's, that's, that work's been going on for quite a while and they're starting to release some of their, some of their plants to, to, um, more natural environments to kind of see how they do and persistence and that sort of stuff. Interesting. Interesting. So that has, there's some potentially positive news on that front, but for all intents and purposes, the American elm and the, and the chestnut are cautionary tales. And yes. what do they say about the, the other trees that you're mentioning, the Eastern hemlock, white ash and sugar maple? How do we not get to the point where we're talking them in the past uh, tense? Um, well, <laughs> we might be a little too late already, quite honestly, and that's that's the sad part. Um, I mean, the key is, you know, finding these pests um, and then dealing with them quickly enough that we don't allow them to escape. And so with the um, with the emerald ash borer, it's attacked attacks pretty much all ash species other than a few of the, well, it will attack some of the Asian species, but they, they have natural resistance to it. Um, that insect is so small, it spreads so easily that once that one got, um, got established in the wild, it's pretty much swept across a large area of, of the, the native range of ash already. There's been a lot of biological control agents that have been released, and it feels to me that they are starting to get some success because uh, we've had emerald ash borer here for eight or more years, sort of active infestations where, where I am. And we have several, we've got a ton of ash trees on the property, tiny ones, a few large ones. And they, the trees north of our property started dying, kind of classic roadside trees, uh, started dying six or seven years ago. I'm like, okay, there goes our ashes. And our one tree has been showing symptoms for the last three or four years, but it doesn't really seem to be progressing much. So 
they're releasing uh, basically insects that feed on the eggs or the larvae at different stages, all these other sort of things. And if those, and it's a giant if, but if those actually then build up enough populations and then can uh, sort of keep the emerald ash borer as, you know, yet just another bark boring beetle, because we have plenty of them already, um, then we can have some level of control. The sad part is, you know, if you're looking north of here, almost all the ash trees are gone. Uh, and then um, where I grew up in Ohio, that that area has just been decimated with with that. So there's there's going to be a lot of recovery that has to happen. Um, and then um, and then of course then you're going to have to replant trees and then hope that those biological control agents move back as the emerald ash borer comes back in again. Um, so and there might be some individuals that are actually resistant to the. Um, the emerald ash borer, people have been keeping an eye out for that. I haven't heard of any um, people find like remnant trees and they get all excited and then they go back three years later and they're dead. So, because um, the most resistant tree, when the insects don't have anything to eat, you know, even if it's not your preferred food, if you're really, really, really hungry, you'll you'll eventually go after the, the better defended one. So, uh, but, you know, if we can react to those things very quickly and the pest as a biology that allows us to, to sort of mobilize quickly enough to deal with it, then, then we can do that sort of thing. And, and the hemlock woolly adelgid is what's attacking the hemlocks. And we've released a lot of biological control agents for it. And, and I haven't heard as much about how successful those are being. But again, it, this, that tree in particular is such a slow growing tree and they're beautiful. I mean, they're, they're about as shade tolerant of a tree as you can get, which means they grow really, really slowly. So, you know, you might be looking at four or 500 years to get sort of real regeneration of hemlock forests. And so even, you know, a 20 year period where there were no hemlocks, and then we have to go back in and reseed and all that sort of thing, if we can get the, the, uh, the insect pest under control, that's a, that's a pretty major impact long-term. Oh, wow. As far as what's attacking the maples now, that is another bark boring beetle. It's a beautiful beetle. It's a really large beetle, which makes it really easy to see. And it means it doesn't move that much. Now, when we say it doesn't move that much, it still move. it can move a kilometer pretty easily. So that's still a pretty good amount of movement. But we've had five different, I think, five different invasions of that species in the US. Some of all of those are still, are either actively being removed or still being, they're under quarantine areas. And we've been able to mobilize pretty quickly on that. But the sad part for me is if we keep getting these insects being introduced and keep having to go out and kill, you know, a hundred thousand trees to keep it, to keep it under control, you know, we're just, that's, you know, that's Russian roulette. At some point in time, they're going to get out and, and, and that's, that's going to, then, then we're going to go the same route as the chestnut or the, uh, or the American elm. So. Wow. Wow. There's a quote in your book. The question remains, with the loss of major tree species, why hasn't there been more of an outcry? And you talk about this whole idea of plant blindness. Tell us about this. So uh, one of the, this is something that the botanical research community talks about quite a bit, is because people, you know, everybody notices animals, everybody, I, I teach intro plant classes, I ask people, you know, honestly, do you like plants more than animals? Nobody says yes, I always ask, why do you like animals more? They do stuff. I'm like, okay, that's not that exciting, but, you know, we'll leave that alone. Um, when people look outside, as long as there are plants or, you know, if it's a forest, as long as there are trees, they seem to be okay with that. 
we seem to forget that a lot of the things we see pretty commonly aren't native here. Um, and that kind of carries over into, you know, when you're looking at your forest and your forest health, if you're interested in that sort of thing, as long as you have trees, you probably think it's okay. And so, you know, we lost the American elms and then other trees took over those spots. And when we lost the chestnuts, largely oaks took over those spots. And so, yeah, it was bad for a while, but 30, 40 years, we tend to forget things that are happening relatively quickly, as it turns out, as we move on to, you know, a new war, a new disease, a new whatever. And people just kind of look out. And as long as they look outside and they see some flowers, some fruit for the birds, whatever, that sort of thing, it doesn't matter if it's an invasive species that's, you know, knocking everything else out of the forest community, or it's an actual pretty functioning forest. People just sort of deal with them as, you know, as long as the world stays green, it's good. And as long as we can kind of maintain that, then that's, that's some semblance of, of at least function the way most people would think of it. So. Interesting. Interesting. Now you mentioned in the book that there, there have been ebbs and flows of species simply because, you know, the ice age and sure. climate change throughout, you know, thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of years. But the, the, the main reason why this is such a dramatic change is literally the the time window is much shorter. We're talking about 50 to 100 years rather than thousands of years for the species to adjust to uh, diseases and things that have been introduced to them. The question I had is, you know, worst case scenario, will these, we're talking about the hemlock, the white ash and the sugar maple, will they just move further north to the point where they're in areas where these these beetles or other pests will die over, over the winter is is like is there a spot where they can be saved or they can they can thrive? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I've heard you know I've heard people talk about those sorts of things. I mean the the one of the other issues though is that you know when we look at our biological control agents, some of those don't do that well the further north you go as well. And so there are some mm -hmm. of the biological control agents I think. I think this is more of an issue for the hemlocks, but I, I can't remember. I can't remember which um, uh, which insect it was now. But um, but certain, you know, colder climates, the predatory insects on the um, on the pest weren't able to survive. So yeah, I mean, it is possible for some of these things. You know, the the other thing to kind of think of is, is we think of these things as being relatively stationary, but you know, if if you're a hemlock woolly adjelge and if you're you're at the northern limit of your range there's a really strong selective pressure in all of those hemlocks that are just a little further north, just a little, a little too, a little colder than you're used to dealing with. And those sort of selective pressures really can drive things really pretty rapidly. I mean, if your average hemlock is living, you know, in a canopy situation, two or 300 years, your, your average woolly adelgids, you know, a year ish, whatever they're, you know, you've got generations after generations after generations. So the potential for, for evolutionary change that will then allow those, those pests to move further northward is just sitting right there. I mean, we, we see that where I am when we, you know, we converted pretty much everybody went to basically uh, herbicide resistant crops. And now we have herbicide resistant weeds because the only weeds that survive are the ones you're able to that that survive after being sprayed and so they're the only ones that pass on copies of the genes and now you have a population of things that are you know that now you can't kill with what you have and so these same sorts of things that we see in agriculture happen in the wild whether we're driving it or not so 
there might be a refugia up north. I wouldn't count on it all for a really, really long time period. And you certainly, maybe it'll buy us a little bit of time, but, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a big gamble. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. I was just trying to find some hope in this situation. <laughs> um, well, speaking of hope, like what, what can, so, you know, I'm reading your book or the, someone's listening to this podcast and they read your book. What, what, what can an average person do? Like, is there any, are there any groups like you were mentioning with the American chestnut? group that was trying to uh, help the American chestnut come back? Are there any groups that you recommend or or what, what would you recommend to someone who wants to help out and, and change things? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there there's a, a group working with American elms. There's there are multiple groups working with chestnuts. Those are those are worthy groups um, to, to support with uh, financial or working with them. They always need more people to do that sort of thing. You know, I think other sorts of things the simplest thing to do is, it's also the hardest thing to do, if we can just stop bringing in new problems. We have plenty of problems already. We don't, you know, every time we we let these uh, Asian longhorn beetles, the ones that are, uh, that are attacking maples, and then they actually are pretty generalist, so it's not just maples, but they really like maples. Every time we get, let those escape, that's another chance that they're going to get established. So, you know, thinking from a political standpoint about figuring out ways to prevent these sorts of things coming in, whether it's the sad thing is we already have regulations on wood as packing material and it's supposed to be dry or treated or whatever. And as it turns out, it's not always dried or treated or whatever the heck it ends up being. And, and, it, and every one of these invasions that we've seen has been close to some place where you have an international shipping hub where crates are sitting outside and APHIS intercepts so many things every year in their their shipping and examination facilities that it's it's crazy i mean they're doing as much as they can we need to give them either more resources or whatever and people say well that you know you're you're against you know a, a open free economy i just don't want to pay for all these all these other sorts of things i'd rather pay a little more for what i'm actually using and not have the forests be destroyed and and all these other sorts of things i mean think about all the folks that that do uh, maple sugaring and and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if you ask them, you know, would you rather have a, you know a cheap motor part or would you rather have your livelihood? I'm pretty sure they're going to pick their livelihood. And re regardless of of how we chop this up, the issues we're generating with bringing in these forest pests are expensive, and we just need to make up our minds as as a society: do we want to pay for these things as upfront preventative costs. And again, we all go to the doctors and doctors always push preventative care because it's way cheaper in the long run. Or do we want to wait until something escapes and then we have to throw everything at it, research money, all these other sort of things to figure out how to fix it, mitigation costs, all those other sort of things. The tricky thing with being proactive is you never know what problems you have, right? Because you took care of them before they even got established. And Yet insurance companies are perfectly happy to pay for that sort of thing because they know long run, it's a it's a it's a much better it's a much better return on investment. So those are the, those are the, the the discussions we need to have, and and those are people that are concerned about these sorts of things when these issues come up. Then that's a then that's a more responsible packaging, shipping, all that sort of stuff is really important for for folks that have land. Um, you know, we all know that if we quit mowing our lawn, it's going to go nasty and all these other sort of things. So we're used to the idea of land maintenance. 
people get pieces of woods and that sort of thing. And like, oh, I don't have to do anything. And, you know, if you've got that really nice piece of timber, then good for you. Um, my, the, the little bit of woods that I have is not very nice at all. And it's got a lot of invasives in it and all the other sort of thing. And, and um, people have to get used to the idea of, of managing lands and, and allowing people to manage lands. Um, people seem to have this idea that forest management is always logging and forest management can be just keeping the invasives out. Some of the trees that aren't that good, there's a lot of exotic trees that are out there as well, can be selective firewood cutting. I do that. Um, I take the, the nasty trees out, the other trees grow better. You know, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that sort of thing. And that's just something that we need to be better at, you know, soil conservation service, all that sort of thing. We've got pollinator habitats and all these other sort of things. We've got a local forester here, and I don't think he hardly does anything because nobody nobody knows to go out and sort of ask for help on how do I manage things or building management plans and that sort of stuff. And and that's that's sorely, sorely needed for, for a lot of people. So wow. I mean what what you say speaks, you know, the tragedy of the commons that that even though you you know you're a landowner, but there there's also public land and what you were talking about earlier with plant blindness. Hey, if it's green, it's fine. Um, but the reality is that there are invasive species, both plant and insect, that are causing problems. And so it, it's a it's almost a out of sight, out of mind perspective, particularly for people who live in the city who don't have hardly any interaction other than a park, for example. That this is this might be too far removed from their their reality. But then contextualize it for the person that that may not know the forest as well as you. What are the economic and ecological costs when we when we do lose a uh, species, like we have lost with the elm and the chestnut? Kind of walk us through like what actually happens. So, you know, when when we lose a tree species, there's two sort of immediate economic costs. One would be if that species is used for something in particular. So if we, sugar maple is used for um, some um, some wood instruments, that sort of thing. Um, butcher blocks are pretty commonly made out of maple. And then of course, then maple syrup. So you lose that species, the, the direct economic use of that species goes away. And, and that's a cost um, depending on the species, you know, the, Black walnuts are having some issues now. That's a really valuable timber species, but we also don't have that much of it. It's a really small, that would be a, a pretty small overall impact. You also are going to have then the impacts of, for those, those folks that are in suburban or city sorts of areas, you have these trees dying and they, they can't just, if they fall in a forest, they make a noise and nobody really cares. But if, so kind of jumping towards the ash now, ash was one of the most commonly planted street trees across the vast majority of the U.S. because they grow fast. And most of them are pretty tolerant to um, soil compaction, pollution, that sort of thing. So when ash trees get the emerald ash borer, then you they die and you end up then having to remove these street trees. And so where I grew up in Ohio, ash is sort of the sort of most abundant sort of early successional tree. So you stop farming an area, Eastern red cedars come in, nobody likes those. So they take those out. They've got these nice ash trees and that's fine. I, you know, growing up, there were people that had like whole front yards that were nice little forests and they're all ash trees. And now they have basically a bunch of stumps because the trees grow. They had to bring in tree companies to take out trees. They had to do all this other sort of stuff. Um, and tree companies were basically just taking out the sort of highest priority trees because 
literally everybody had trees they needed to take down. If you're in a municipality, the city has to pay for the trees they have to pay for. If you have one in your yard, you might be spending two or $3,000 to to have your tree cut down. And then of course, there's all the cooling from the shading, there's air pollution mitigation. There's um, there's a lot of research that talks about like exposure to greenness and whether it's trees or shrubs or gardens and all that sort of thing, that that's there's psychological benefits for all that sort of stuff. These are these are all sort of costs that that environmental economists can put on these sorts of things. People like to say that the the emerald ash borer is going to be the single most expensive tree issue we've ever had. And like, okay, well, nobody was doing that sort of work when the chestnuts died, and people depended on them for food and and, and to lumber and a whole bunch of other things. So, I'm not sure I really buy that argument. But it's certainly expensive, and it's it's expensive. It's been expensive at a governmental level for all the control things they've done. It's been expensive at local levels where people are uh, municipalities are having to remove the trees and then down to the individual level where you need to replace your trees and all that sort of stuff. So so those are the economic costs for really any sort of tree loss. The ecological impacts are really difficult to know. There's the immediate, you had a tree, however much of the forest canopy it was, suddenly that's no longer there. So now you've got openings in the canopy and you're going to have then this sort of race of what plants are in the understory to try to make it up into the canopy. And so the tricky part that we have in an awful lot of, of the Eastern US is there's a lot of exotic shrubs that are there, invasive shrubs. And the one thing they do really well in is this nice little burst of light. And so what you have then are these shrubs that are getting in there and then perhaps out competing the tree seedlings and that sort of stuff. And those trees that do get growing, then and get above the shrubs, then there's going to be a whole bunch of of woody vines that are also kind of really going through population explosions. There's um, there's a nice area of uh, all dead ash trees just north of our property here, and they're all completely covered with like Virginia creeper, poison ivy, and grapes. Um, and so those species are going to be super, super abundant. And um, those species also have the ability to sort of strangle young trees and do all those sorts of things. Then if you kind of go a little further down the road, the nutrients that those trees would have been pulling up, the, whatever interactions they're having with their local environment, those are all going to be changed. You might end up with more so soil erosion. You might end up with more or less of other sort of nutrients going out into the, the waterways. Things that depend on those species for food are going to start going through issues. Most of the time, we don't know who all those, in those intricate interactions actually uh, involve um, until things disappear we're really good at doing you know the, the monday morning like oh that's what happened um so so yeah once things go bad we can kind of draw those lines in there but even if you go out you know a hundred or more years you know so when we lost the chestnuts that was over again within an individual forest probably was a 10-year sort of prospect the whole sort of range 50 60 years you know all of those trees in a particular forest would have gone relatively quickly the Oaks largely took over those spots, maybe a couple different species of oaks. They kind of came in there. Now those oaks are starting to senesce and they're starting to die. So now we've got basically a pulse of recruitment. So instead of individual trees dying, like you would expect in an old growth forest and being replaced and this nice sort of 
constant sort of ebb and flow of species. You've got this big pulse of trees that all got established at the same time. They're all going to get old and start dying at roughly the same time. And, you know, it, it might be a thousand years before you get back anywhere close to being what the, the forest dynamics actually were. And then again, associated with that, then how the, uh, the other, the other organisms interact with those dynamics. And so it's, it's, it's almost impossible to fully know what the impacts of some of these things really and truly are. Um, and again, um, we, when we know to look at things, we pick up on it, but we're, we, we still are learning an awful lot about forests. And so um, we, we still don't necessarily know what all the, these long-term impacts are going to be. Yeah. And, and as you said, sometimes we, we figure out too late, um, which is unfortunate. And that's why you've written the book is to try to make sure that it's not too late. Right. Um, so, if you could, you know, your book's out now and you could put it in the hands of someone, you, you know, you, you have it and your friends and your, and your colleagues and your, your social group has it. Who is someone that you would want to read this book that potentially could make a difference? Like a, could it be a politician or? or some, yeah, I, I think politicians. Um, my hope with writing this was to try to not just talk about individual trees and all these other things, but to kind of paint the picture of there's a lot of things that are happening. Relatively few of them are good. And, you know, this is this is something that we need to deal with. So the more politicians that read this and start thinking about these sorts of things, and then when it comes time for APHIS's budget and that sort of thing, that maybe they're a little kinder with the budget or maybe thinking about, you know, putting more teeth in our import export. Well, I guess it's not, I don't think we're exporting a lot of weeds other places or in pathogens other places, but maybe we are, but, you know, thinking about that sort of stuff, you know, this is, this is national security at, at its, at its kind of heart. you know, we, we have our resources and we need to protect them. And, um, and, and the way we're doing it doesn't seem to work all that well. We've, we've come up with some great things. I mean, the, the research that's been done to figure out which, biological control insects to release. I mean, the, the time between uh, emerald ash borer showing up and then the time before the first insect rele was released was was like eight years or something like that. I mean, that's crazy fast. Um, we've got biotechnology that we can now, and, and they're doing this some with some of the chestnuts, you can do gene editing and sort of put in um, resistance genes into plant embryos and grow them up and do all these other sort of things. We have all this technology. We have the ability to do these things um, trying to limit the number of things we need to fix would be useful. And then making sure that we have the resources to go back and fix the things we, we weren't able to head off before they got established is, is going to be really, really, um, it's really going to be necessary as we move forward, if we're going to continue this pace of, of new, of new things showing up. So. Wow. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for writing this book. This is incredibly important information that people need to hear. And we're going to do our best to get it in the right hands. And anyone that's listening to this, please tell your friends uh, and your community about Scott's new book, Tree by Tree, Saving North America's Eastern Forests. It was great talking with you, Scott. Great talking with you, Jonathan. Take care. Thanks. That was Scott Miners, author of the new book, Tree by Tree, Saving North America's Eastern Forests. You can purchase Scott's new book as an affordable paperback or ebook at our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu, and use the promo code 09POD to save 30% off. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk.
Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.